1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. As we continue our study of 1 Timothy, many people believe this passage to actually be the heart of this letter. And that might seem strange at first because we've covered so many heavy topics like the roles of men and women in the church and the qualification for deacons and the qualification for elders. But what Paul argues in these three verses is what makes all of the previous instruction that we learned from chapter 2 verse 1 to chapter 3 verse 13 so important. And what Paul is communicating is the undeniable and irreplaceable purpose and need for the church of Jesus Christ. There has been a lot of research done in the last couple of years on a movement that is taking place within America that is known as the de-churching movement. In fact, there is a book written not long ago about this phenomenon known as de-churching. What we are experiencing currently in the United States, according to this book and other research, is the largest and fastest religious shift in the history of our country. Around 40 million adults in America used to go to church, but now do not. That represents 16% of the adult population in our country. In the eight decades that Gallup has tracked American religious membership, more adults now do not attend a church than do attend a church. And this de-churching has significant ramifications, not only religiously, but also culturally and relationally. This book on the de-churching movement mentions that at a relational level, 68% of de-churched evangelicals said that their parents played a role in their decision to stop attending church. Religiously, fewer church plants are started every year, and increasing numbers of churches every year now close their doors. In fact, the 40 million who have left the church represent $1.4 trillion in annual income for those churches. And then culturally, 40 million Americans who once attended church and now do not attend church, the research shows that this also affects the local communities. Many research studies, even outside religious research studies, can prove that stronger churches help build stronger communities. There are more vibrant communities when the churches in those communities are also vibrant. Now, this sermon is not a sermon on 
de-churching. But these statistics I'm using to argue that somewhere along the line, there became this major disconnect in our country, especially in our region of the country, about a Christian's relationship to a local church. And I hope that Paul's teaching to Timothy this morning can reassert the value and the importance of the local church for you today and anyone who might be listening. Behavior in the church matters because of the importance of the church as it relates to the gospel. So this morning, based off this text, we can know three truths. Number one, that behavior in the church matters. Number two, we can know the importance of the church. And then number three, we can know that the church confesses the gospel. So number one, behavior in the church matters. Number two, the importance of the church. And number three, the church confesses the gospel. Number one, behavior in the church matters. Paul is writing to Timothy and he tells him that just in case he's not able to come and see him in person, he wants to give him this information just in case there's a delay. So therefore, everything that Paul has told Timothy in chapter 2 and all of chapter 3, he found to be so important that he couldn't wait until he saw Timothy in person. He needed to go ahead and get it written down and sent to him. This communicates the urgency with which Paul thought these instructions needed to be given to Timothy. If they were not that important, then it could have waited until Paul was able to make it to Ephesus. But the issues that Paul was addressing here were of such importance that he wanted to make sure that Timothy received it in writing. Paul says in verse 15, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave. This means everything from chapter 2 verse 1 all the way through chapter 3 verse 13 should be followed. This is not a suggestion. This is not just a recommendation that Paul is giving to Timothy. This should be followed. So what are all these things that we've talked about over the last several weeks? The church should be praying for lost people. Men and women have specific functions and roles within the life of the church. Pastors and elders and overseers. Remember that the term elder, pastor and overseer is interchangeable. They all mean the same thing. So elders, pastors and overseers should have qualifications that the church should uphold. Last week we learned about the qualifications of deacons. How we shouldn't water down the qualifications for a deacon either. The word for ought, which is used there, in the Greek means it is necessary. Listen to what one commentator said explaining the significance of that word, ought. He says, it is necessary is an important word in the pastoral epistles. That's what P-E means there. Of its nine occurrences, four of them are used to say that the church leaders must be a certain type of person. Its occurrence here in verse 15 carries the strongest meaning of all nine passages. 
Paul is not saying that the behavior he is describing is optional. It is mandated because the church is the house of the living God, a protector of the truth, and it is therefore absolutely essential that its integrity be maintained. So when we have discussed these very challenging topics over the last three to four weeks, they are not simply suggestions. They are to be followed closely and precisely. Would it be easier if men's and women's roles in the church were more laxed? Would it be easier to find elders in churches if the qualifications were not as rigid? Or if Paul said, oh, just choose some elders that exhibit three of the following qualities of what it means to be an elder. Would it be easier if we could find deacons who were double-tongued and could serve without being tested? It might be easier, but it wouldn't be biblical. Since these instructions are not optional, it would be better for us to have one deacon who can meet the qualifications that Paul lays out in 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13, as opposed to 30 that do not. It would be more faithful and obedient to have one pastor who fits the qualifications of what it means to be a pastor according to 1 Timothy 3 than it would be to have 10 that do not. Even if more work could get done having more pastors. Even, meant, even if it meant more deacons could get more stuff done if we had more of them. We cannot water down Scripture. When the Bible gives us instructions about how we are to live our lives or how the church is to operate, it is our responsibility to abide by them. Following the Bible is not always easy and popular. And Paul's instructions for the church will often go against the grain of the culture. But we must remain faithful no matter what it might cost us. The behavior of these false teachers in Ephesus that Timothy is dealing with, they were one of the reasons that Paul had to write these instructions to begin with. They were believing in myths and genealogies. They were sexually immoral. They were forbidding marriage, as we'll learn next week in 1 Timothy 4. They were trying to persuade Christians in Ephesus to believe their message. And while the instructions that Paul gives in chapter 2 and 3 might seem on the surface only pertinent to Paul's audience, they also apply to us today. These are not just cultural recommendations that Paul is making to Timothy about the church in Ephesus. These apply to us today as well. The Bible's understanding of the church is that it is the most important institution within the life of a believer. And therefore, the instructions that Paul gives Timothy here should be followed. Which is why, in verse 14, Paul is saying, Everything that I have just taught you matters. Behavior in the church matters. Number two, we also learn the importance of the church. 
In the second half of verse 15, you see in your Bible that we have three descriptions of the church. Number one, the household of God. Number two, the church of the living God. And then number three, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So let's unpack each of those phrases. Number one, the household of God. Generally speaking, families reside in houses. Paul is saying that Christians are the family of God. The church is to be understood as a family, which is why I said when we gathered this morning at the table that this is a family meal. We distinguish who is in a particular family many times by which house they live in, who they spend a lot of their time with, and of course by blood. Your church is supposed to be your family. And in the West, especially as Americans, if we're not careful, we will elevate our biological family over our church family. And you need to know this morning that your church family trumps your biological family. You might have the same physical blood as those within your family. But not necessarily everyone in your family has the blood of Christ shed for their sins. So if you don't understand this gathering as being the most important relationships that you have in your life, I would encourage you to read 1 Timothy, read Ephesians, read Colossians, read any of Paul's letters and see what he says about how important the family of God is supposed to be in our lives. Baptism is the ordinance by which you become a part of this family of faith. And it is the Lord's Supper which is the celebration of being a part of that family when we proclaim the death of Christ. So those two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, is what constitute and what make us a family of faith. In in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says this in verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Christians have been washed by the blood of Jesus. And thus we identify universally with all Christians across all time and space. But we also identify with a local body of believers. And unfortunately, many people gloss over or don't understand this theological truth. Which is why the church is often viewed by many as some optional add-on to being a Christian. Mark Dever in his book on the church says this, For too many Christians today, the doctrine of the church is like a decoration on the front of a building. Maybe it's pretty, maybe it's not, but finally it's unimportant because it bears no weight. And in this passage today, Paul wants us to understand the weight of what it means to be a part of the family of God. Families pray for each other. Families love each other. 
Families protect each other. Families rebuke each other. Families have a common bond. The bond for our spiritual family is the blood of Jesus Christ shed for our sins. We are a family, brothers and sisters. But number two, Paul also uses the phrase that the church is of the living God. Now I want to trace for you how this works out in the storyline of the whole Bible. Greg Allison's little book on the church helped me understand this. Let's start all the way back in Genesis 1 and 2. And don't worry, I'm not going to preach the whole Bible. But in Genesis 1 and 2, here's what we learn. God created Adam and Eve. And he placed them in the garden where he dwelled among them. So you can consider Eden being the temple of God in that moment. God dwelt within, or not within, but with Adam and Eve. And in Genesis 3, we know that they disobey God and they sin. And what is the punishment for their sin? To be cast out of God's presence. They are removed from the Garden of Eden, never to return. And the question that the rest of the Bible, from Genesis 4 all the way till the end, is this question. It is, how will God once again dwell with his people? And after choosing Abraham in Genesis 12 and promising to bless him and all of his descendants, we have the story of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph... And the Israelites eventually travel in to Egypt. And after Joseph dies, the Pharaoh at that time forgets about the Israelites. And instead of protecting them, he enslaves them. And they are in bondage to Pharaoh. And God delivers them from that bondage by the crossing of the Red Sea. And we see, after they cross the Red Sea, God beginning this process of dwelling among his people. And he does it first in the making of the tabernacle. In Exodus chapter 25, here's what it says. And then let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. The tabernacle was a temporary structure where God would dwell among his people. But later God instructs Solomon to make a more permanent dwelling place for his presence. 1 Kings chapter 8 verse 10 and 11. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord. So that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Unfortunately, after this, Israel is forced to leave their home due to disobedience. And they are exiled out of God's presence. And God does not go with them from the temple when they are in exile. And even after the temple is rebuilt, his presence is not there. Instead, he gives them prophets who pointed to one who would give the people new hearts... And who would put God's spirit actually within them. This is the message of the prophet Ezekiel. When he says in chapter 36. And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit. 
I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put a spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So how will God dwell again with his people? The answer is in the person of Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and did what? Dwelt among us. It is Jesus' atoning sacrifice for his sinful people that allows God to once again dwell among his people. And Jesus promises that after he is crucified and resurrected, he will ascend back to his Father. But when he ascends, he will send a helper. John 14, 16 and 17. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. Here it is. For he dwells with you and will be in you. Adam and Eve cast out of the Garden of Eden. A temporary structure of the tabernacle. A more permanent structure of the temple. The Israelites exiled away from Jerusalem. When they returned to rebuild it, God's presence is not there. The prophets proclaim of one who will come. Jesus comes and literally dwelled among his people. He was crucified, resurrected, And when he ascended to his father, in Acts chapter 2, we have the story of the Spirit coming down and living within God's people. This is a promise not only for individual Christians, but also a promise for the church of Jesus Christ. The church is where the presence of God dwells. It is not just the Holy Spirit living within you as an individual. He also lives within the body of Christ. It is the collection of God's people in the church who have the Spirit of God in them. It is the church who is the body of Christ and the temple of the Holy Spirit. And number three, this third description Paul gives is the church as a pillar and as a buttress of the truth. A pillar helps support a structure, as does a buttress. Paul is saying that the church supports and protects the gospel. This means that the decisions and actions that local congregations around the world make communicate something about the gospel. How we worship weekly says something about the gospel. How we take in new members communicates something about the gospel. How we celebrate the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and baptism communicates something about the gospel. How we operate our ministries and our programs within the church communicates something about the gospel. The church is the gospel made visible to the community. This is why 
every Sunday morning, at least more recently, we have, or I have read, this description of the gospel as we begin our service. We need to know what we believe about the gospel. We need to be reminded about the gospel. Are we supporting and upholding the truth of the gospel, as Paul says here in this passage? Are we emphasizing things that would draw lost people to hear the gospel? Are we being, as Paul says, a pillar and buttress of the truth? Which leads perfectly into the final point. That the church confesses the gospel. In verse 16, Paul says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. What you find here is an excerpt of an ancient hymn. And in this ancient hymn, in verse 16, Paul is quoting the contents of the gospel. The mystery of godliness is the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are a lot of views on this hymn. Some people think it's one stanza. Some people think it's two stanzas. Some people think it's three stanzas with parallelism. And you can go into the weeds on this verse. Regardless of which view you take, though, what you see in this hymn is various aspects of Jesus' life was revealed in the flesh, is a statement about the incarnation of Jesus, the one who came and lived among sinners like you and me. And we confess that as a church, that Jesus came and lived among sinful people, was vindicated in the Spirit, is a reference to His resurrection. The resurrection vindicates the claims that Jesus made while He was on earth. Seen by angels is more than likely a reference to his ascension when he would have been witnessed by angelic beings as he made his way to the right hand of the Father. So in these first three lines, we have the person and work of Christ. That Jesus came and lived among sinful people. That he died. That he was resurrected. And now he ascends and he is with his Father in heaven. This describes exactly the work of Christ. In the final lines it says, Proclaimed among the nations, which was what the church did in Acts and what we still do today. We proclaim the gospel to everyone who will hear it. We go to the ends of the earth. The billions of people... In unreached people groups all over the world that have never even heard the name of Jesus. We proclaim him among the nations. Because we know that one day, according to scripture, every tongue, tribe, nation, and people will bow down to Jesus. So let's go ahead and make sure those that are bowing down are doing so. Having repented of their sin and placed their faith in Christ. We are to proclaim the gospel to everyone, everywhere. Believed on in the world is the saving response to the proclamation of the gospel. Just because we proclaim the gospel doesn't mean that everyone will respond in repentance and faith. The only proper response theologically in order to be reconciled to God is to believe on Him 
in the world in which we live and then taken up in glory is a statement affirming the belief that Jesus now, as we speak, sits at the right hand of the Father and he is reigning sovereignly over all of his creation. So what we see in this hymn is a perfect summary of the whole of Jesus' ministry. He came, he died, he was resurrected, the church now proclaims him as people repent of their sin, place their faith in Christ, and he sits on his throne, reigning over all creation. Verse 16 is our confession as a church. I should have asked Reed to create music to this verse. And we actually could have sung it together as a hymn. We are gospel people who have been saved from our sin and are now slaves to righteousness. We serve the living God who reigns on his throne in heaven. We are united by the truth of the gospel. Lost people, if you are present today, and I know there are lost people here, know that this is who we are. We are sinful people saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have been reconciled to a holy God, not through anything that we've done, but through the shed blood of Jesus. And our only response is to receive the gift of salvation in repentance and faith. There is nothing anyone can do to earn or achieve eternal life. Grace is God's unmerited favor towards us. So if you are here today, I would invite you, we would invite you as a church to repent of your sin. Place your faith in Jesus Christ and in the power of his death and resurrection. It's only fitting this morning, since we are a church that confesses the gospel, that we confess the gospel together. And I want to do that right now. I want you to take your bulletin and turn to that back page or you can follow along on the screen. And instead of me simply reading it, I want us to confess the truth of the gospel together. And here is what it says. Say it with me. The gospel is the joyous declaration that God is redeeming the world through Christ and that he commands everyone everywhere to repent from sin and trust Jesus Christ for salvation. Each of us has sinned against God, breaking his law and rebelling against his rule. And the penalty for our sin is death and hell. But because of his love, God sent his son Jesus to live for his people's sake. The perfect, obedient life God requires. And to die on the cross in our place for our sin. On the third day, Christ rose bodily from the grave and now reigns in heaven, offering forgiveness, righteousness, resurrection, and eternal blessedness in God's presence to everyone who repents of sin and trusts solely in him for salvation. That is the gospel. That is why we gather as a family. Let's pray today. God, we recognize in this passage the beauty of your church. And it is a privilege to be a part of this family of faith. 
And I pray today that there is anyone present who has never turned from their sin and placed their faith in Christ, that you would give them the boldness and the courage to find myself or one of our pastors after the service so that we can share more with them about the beauty of the gospel. We thank you for your word, and we know that it is your word by your spirit that produces fruit in our hearts. So I pray that you would take the truth of this message today and that you would plant seeds in our hearts so that we would bear fruit. We love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.